That is our prayer, Lord, that we would be entirely surrendered to you. That Jesus Christ would be Lord and Master. Father, we are thick-necked and stubborn and difficult people. Would you just give us tender hearts for your word and give us a, a willing heart of submission and surrender to your will for our lives, showing us how to bring our lives into obedience to your word. Father, as we launch this new series on the Christian home and family, would you just encourage us and bless us and strengthen us through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I don't know if you noticed that one of the key headlines of the week has been a news story about a family of eight that was in an SUV, evidently traveling at a very high rate of speed on a, on a high uh, cliffside road, an ocean's edge in California. They're finding evidence that they might have been going upwards of 90 miles an hour when they flew off of the road in their SUV and tumbled to the bottom where all eight in the vehicle were killed. I was thinking about word pictures, about uh, how crazy it is out there in some of our homes and maybe how you feel about your home. We're beginning a brand new series on the home and the family today and um, I just wanted to take a few minutes and lay a little bit of a groundwork. Really, in a lot of ways, this entire message is, is laying a groundwork for the next nine or ten messages that I so hope will be helpful, and I pray that they'll be helpful. But I wonder if, if sometimes you feel like that's your life. You're traveling down the road of life as fast as you can. It's getting faster. The road is getting narrower and, and the, the risks are greater and there's fewer guardrails and you, you maybe find yourselves wondering, I, I wonder if we can handle this journey. Are we going to make it? Are we going to be like that? family in the SUV that just flies off and explodes or implodes. It's really easy to be negative about the condition of the home and family today around us. I, I don't have to do much to document for you how difficult it is. Some of you have been watching your misery index go up in your own home, in your own marriage, in your own relationship with your own kids. The misery index is getting in the danger zone. You're wondering, how are we going to find relief? Why is it if we're following Christ and we're part of the church that we're finding this thing of family and relationships so difficult? Well, one reason for sure is the world in which we live today. I mean, it's crazy out there, isn't it? It's just crazy. I mean, we live in a world where Divorce is now commonplace. We have the residual effect of divorce and all of the fallout on our children, blended families, multiple marriages, all of the difficult statistics that go along with divorce. And the troubling part is, is that the church is not far behind the world in tracking statistically with it. We look around the rest of our world and we, we're trying to raise up our children to follow Christ and to walk in obedience to the word of God. And we live in a world where for example, gender is being redefined. And, and you think, what is that all about? And, 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 a, and a marriage isn't necessarily just between a husband and a wife anymore. And, and our children are supposed to have clarity about roles in a marriage and, and what a home is supposed to look like. And 
And we just live in a world where things that are unnatural and confused are being, we're being taught that that's normal and natural, and it's really not, and it doesn't at all align with God's word. What do you do with all of that? There's been a tsunami wave of, of the pornification of our culture. What an incredible negative influence that has had upon marriages, our homes, relationships, our young men, our young women. We could talk about the issue of cohabitation. That is that epidemic proportion in our culture. More people cohabit now than are getting married every year, come together in cohabitation. It's the norm. In fact, if you were to go walk up and down the sidewalk somewhere and find a crowd of people and interview them, you would find that the statistic is that only one in every four people believe that cohabitation is wrong. Three out of every four Americans now believe that cohabitation is is okay and maybe even wise to do. There are some pretty interesting things that I, I was uh, glancing at, some statistics on cohabitation, by the way, and I found it interesting that the growing demographic of those who are cohabiting is the 50 age 50 and up group as they divorce and as they uh, lose their spouse to death. I thought that was very interesting. I found it even more interesting to find that there's a handful of states that outlaw cohabitation. There are still laws on the books in Florida, Michigan, Mississippi, North Carolina, Virginia, and West Virginia, that it is illegal to cohabit. We have the assistant prosecutor here today. I don't know if he would prosecute on that or not, but it's on the books. I might be bringing a few people to you later this week. There's more than one way to skin a cat, huh? You think about the connection that our home has to a screen connected clear out to Hollywood and other sources and what's being piped into our home. Let's just, let's just go to the primetime viewing hour of the evening and just think about what you know without even researching it, what you've seen, whether you watch them or not, you run into them as you scan or surf and you realize that what is being presented to us in primetime for shows about family life is absolutely in the category of the bizarre. That that which is dysfunctional is now functional, I guess. You can't even make up the stuff that is presented. I mean, and then you think about a few years back, a few decades now, and you think about the Cleaver family, for example, compared to the kinds of families that are being presented on primetime television series now as normal American families and what they're dealing with. So it's really easy to get really negative about the family in the home, isn't it? And I suspect that there are people here that everyone thinks that your family is pretty well put together, that your marriage is pretty well put together. But truth be known, it's more fragile than even everybody realizes And we could be really negative about what's happening, about what's going to happen. But I want to tell you that as we launch this next nine or ten sermons about the home and the family, I really do want to be encouraging. We have to define reality. We have to understand what we're dealing with. But I want to be encouraging. I want to be biblical. If we're biblical, we will be encouraging. I want to be practical. I want to give some help to you in a practical basis in the weeks ahead.
I trust that God will use this sermon series to be restorative, that relationships can be healed, that it'll be motivational, that people will be motivated to deal with some things they need to deal with. And I trust that it will be hope-filled, that you will recognize that through the power of the gospel and the word of God, that we can, little by little, inch by inch, make progress and find healing in our relationships. I recognize that it's not easy, and I recognize that change comes hard. I want to remind you of just a couple more things uh, as we, in a sense, continue our thinking of laying a foundation and introduction here. You might turn your attention to the notes if you like to keep the notes, but I want to remind you that the problems in the home and dysfunctional relationships are not a new problem. And don't, don't think to yourself that you're unique. This is not a new problem. I was thinking about uh, our Bible and I was thinking about the opening book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. It's a book that is filled with family stories and relationship stories. And what you find, uh, you no sooner get through the creation story of chapters one and chapter two, you get to chapter three and you find that Adam and Eve living in a utopian paradise disobey and sin. And the residual effect on their home is by chapter four, they have two sons, one named Cain, one named Abel, and Cain kills Abel. I take it he picks up a rock and bashes him behind the head out in the field one afternoon and he kills him. We don't know how he killed him, but he killed him. He murdered him. So we're just thinking about the very first book of the Bible. We're thinking about God's people. And you're going to find in the family stories in the Bible, particularly just Genesis, here's what you're going to find. Letter A, you're going to find murder. And then you're going to find drunkenness. You're going to find greed. You're going to find incest. You're going to find parental favoritism that creates schism and a murderous attitude between brothers. You're going to find extortion. You're going to find anger and hatred. You're going to find jealousy, rape, conspiracy to murder brothers, selling a brother into slavery. And that really is not an exhaustive list at all. Nor is it the end of the story. That's just Genesis. And that's, that's God's people. So I'm telling you, this is not a new problem. I mean, you think about scripture accounts of some of the key players in scripture. I mean, one of our favorite characters in the Bible is David, for example, the guy who killed Goliath. He's a man after God's own heart. His testimony is at the end of his life. That's what God said. You know that David had at least seven wives. It was disastrous for him. He had... He had, I forget the exact count, but maybe like a couple dozen children, most of of whom ended in disaster. He was a horrible father. He had children that murdered children. He had sons that raped their half-sisters. He was a horrible father. King David was as bad of an example as a father as you can find in Scripture. So I'm telling you, if you find yourself with your misery index high, as I've referenced and you think things are fragile in your home, in a way, I want to say, join the club. There's nothing new about that. I also want to remind you that there is no new enemy. You think, well, the reason that the conditions are so horrible in our culture, on the home and the family and society, is that we're in a downgrade. We might be in a downgrade and things might be uh, horrible, but there is no new enemy. It is the same old enemy. 
The enemy is Satan. His playground is the world. And we are vulnerable to our own flesh. And there we have the trilogy that defines our enemy that is the enemy of all enemies that has the record of Scripture shows that that's with whom we do battle. We do battle with the devil, the flesh, and the world. The devil, the flesh, and the world. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and let's take just a minute to illustrate this point. Um, We'll not look up all these verses that I've listed here, but as we continue to just um, lay lay a foundation for our thinking, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, the Apostle Paul is writing to Uh, his second letter to the church at Corinth, a church that was filled with problems and difficulties. He's reminding of them of something that he worries for them. He's worried about something about them. He's going to reference a very familiar story from Genesis chapter 3. I've already referenced it. It's Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. They're living in the Garden of Eden, uh, hemmed in by three rivers, a geographical area defined by three major rivers, that no longer exists. The topography was reconfigured after the flood in Genesis 6. Many Bible students believe that the Garden of Eden was, was tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of square miles. Tens of thousands of square miles, hundreds of thousands of acres. This utopian paradise where they lived. And there they are, and they have one simple instruction, and that is to enjoy themselves and do not eat of this certain tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And where do they find themselves? We don't know the exact circumstances. We're given the account in Genesis chapter 3. You know this story quite well. When the serpent comes, beguiles Eve, we don't know where Adam was. We know that Adam is held accountable completely. Paul will even reference in 2 Corinthians eleven three here that Eve was deceived or beguiled The Apostle Paul, writing in the book of Romans, holds Adam completely responsible for the sinfulness that entered the human race at that time. We call that the fall. Adam sinned, and in Adam all die, and so we all have a sin problem that we have to deal with. In fact, one of the names of the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior is the second Adam. We got human life and sin from the first Adam. We get eternal life and forgiveness of sin from the second Adam, the Lord Jesus. These are real historical people here. And and Eve participates unwisely. Adam, evidently in passivity or in negligence or whatever, doesn't stop it. He doesn't pay attention enough. That's husband material. And so in 2 Corinthians eleven three, the Apostle Paul references a worry that he has for the church. And it reminds us that we have the same enemy that destroyed the first family that ever lived. The first family that God created, and he would actually come and walk with them. God did in the cool of the evening. The very first family, the wheels came off completely. And here's why. Look what it says. 2 Corinthians eleven three. But I am afraid, this is the Apostle Paul talking, I am afraid, I have a fear for you Corinthian believers that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He wants the church to be completely committed with a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. And he's afraid that there will be a deceptive work that will go on by Satan himself that will turn our hearts away 
from our sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That is a worry that we must maintain today. It's as relevant as the day the Apostle Paul worried about the church at Corinth. We must worry about the church in Shenandoah Junction having the opportunity to be beguiled by the evil one and turn away from our sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We have an enemy, but it's not a new enemy. It's Satan. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of this world. And that reminds us of our second enemy, And we're told in 1 John chapter 2, not to love the world nor the things in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This world system orchestrated by Satan, designed to omit all thinking of God. That's why everything is backwards and upside down in Satan's world and in our world today. That's why things that are unnatural and perverse are now called natural and normal when they're not. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about... How cool I used to, that's a little hippie word there, cool. Um, as our missionary used a little drug lingo there. He's so stoked about telling us that, that um, you know, he doesn't even know he's using a little drug lingo there. Back when I was in fourth grade, I picked up on a little vernacular of the day. And I was probably in fourth grade, maybe about 1969 or 70. I don't remember what grade I was in when. And, and, and the word bad became good. You know what I'm talking about? And my buddies and I, nine-year-old, ten-year-old, how old are you in fourth grade? Whatever, in fourth grade, we're walking around, man, that's bad. That's bad. We thought we were so cool saying, bad for good. If it's bad, it's bad. If it's good, it's good. How can bad be good? And that's the way it is, isn't it? Everything gets turned upside down in the world system in which we live. Even the way, even the words and defining words that we would use. Oh, that's bad, man. That's bad. That ain't bad. That's it's good. If it's good, it's good. If it's bad, it's bad. What's wrong with your brain? You're in this world. It's hard to think straight in this world. Not only that, Galatians 5 and other passages warn us about how vulnerable we are to follow the deeds of the flesh. Isn't it interesting that we can know, as Peter reminded us in 1 Peter 5, that Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We can know that we live in a world system that is designed to defeat Christ. A world system that is designed to just be everything opposite of what is right and good and the way God intended and we can know it and we can even be born again and, and we can have a part of our flesh that can look and define and identify things that are negative, that are evil, that are wrong, that are perverse. And there's something in our flesh that says, I want more of that. I want more of that. I want to look at that. I want to participate in that. And so we do battle with the flesh, don't we? This this untamed aspect of our unredeemed self. Our bodies are not evil innately, but in since the fall, everything is under the curse of sin. And even in our own flesh, we desire things that are outside of the will of God and we can know it. It's not an educational thing. We don't need more information. Somehow we need a motivation that would say, no, I'm not going there. Ultimately, in our glorification, when we're with Christ, we will... This is one of the wonderful things about when we're with Christ, when we see him as he is, John said. We will only desire to do right. You think about that for a minute. 
in our glorification, we will, once and for all, put aside this body of death, this flesh, and we will only desire what is right and good. That's going to be a great moment when we can stop doing battle with the flesh. So we have, this, we have the devil, Satan. We have the world system working against us. And we have the flesh. And scripture reminds us repeatedly of this, of this tri-enemy that we have. This three-fold, three-cord-stranded participation of, of difficulty that we have to face. I want to remind you, too, that there's no new excuses. Not only is this not a new problem, having problem with relationships and homes and marriages and children. There's, it's not a new problem. There's no new enemy. There, is, there are no new excuses either. So don't, don't make excuses. Don't say, don't say, society is more corrupt today than it's ever been. You go ask Noah. Ask Noah if we're more corrupt than they were. They were so corrupt that by Genesis chapter 6, God washed them off the face of the earth and drowned everybody. Now, I recognize that there are these these pockets of time, epochs. There's these, these little windows of time where things might have been better. I suspect that Pa and Ma and Mary and Laura and Carrie didn't argue over killing on their video game sets. They're in a wagon train heading west to build a house somewhere next. You ever think about how restless Pa was? The man just didn't want to settle down. You know, there they are, and they're living in a time of relative naivety. I recognize there's windows of time like that, but to say that we're living in the worst of times just isn't true. There have been cultures and societies, and God's people have lived in those times, and they have lived successfully. Don't say it's worse than it's ever been. Don't say sexual immorality is worse than it's ever been. Ask Samuel. His mother drops him off at the temple and she doesn't even know that the two adult priest sons of of the high priest Eli are the most perverse, immoral, sexually driven guys on the planet just about. And they practice their craft openly right in front of everybody in sexual immorality. And little boy Samuel's growing up watching that. I mean, it was everywhere he looked. There are other cultures and societies steeped even at a worse, um, in a worse defining way than our own. Cultural influence is more negative. Ask Daniel. Ask Daniel. Nobody's taken your kids, moved them 1,500 miles away from home, put them in a re-education program, change the way they talk, change the way they dress, change the way they look, change everything about their brain, and, and, and bring in the most high-powered teachers of the day and try to re-educate them? Don't tell Daniel. Don't tell Daniel that cultural influence is more negative than it's ever been in 2018, because he will argue with you on that. So it leads us to the question as you flip your notes, is it really possible to successfully survive as a home and a family in Christ? Can the Christian home and family survive and thrive in today's world? And as we launch the next nine or ten weeks, I want you to know that the answer to that is an emphatic yes. Yes, we can. Yes, we can and we will. And some of you are beautifully doing so. Others of us need some help. And that's what this is about. I'd invite you to turn to Titus chapter 2 for our remaining minutes. And I want us to illustrate uh, uh, the fact that God's word encourages us that that the power of the gospel is such 
that it transforms our lives. And regardless of the society in which we live, we can survive and thrive in the Christian home. This is Titus chapter 2. As you're turning there, let me remind you um, what this letter is about. It was written by the Apostle Paul, who's the old man at this time. And it's one of the pastoral epistles. We call it a pastoral epistle. An epistle is a letter. Okay, it's a fancy word for a letter. And it's a pastoral letter, pastoral epistle. So that means it was a letter written to a pastor. So First and Second Timothy are two letters written by the Apostle Paul to the same guy. The first one just means it's the first letter that Paul wrote to him that we have in our Bible. And then the second letter that he wrote to Timothy. By the way, Second Timothy is the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote before he was martyred. And, um, and he wrote to Timothy. Timothy was a young man that he had raised up under his ministry. He had influenced, he had placed him, he had ordained him, he had put him in ministry, and he was giving him instruction. And Titus is another one of these young pastors. And the Apostle Paul had influenced him, he had raised him up, he had discipled him, and then he had sent him off on assignment. In chapter 1, verse 5, it tells us that he sent Titus to an island in the Mediterranean called the island of Crete, C-R-E-T-E. What you need to know about Crete is that it was a crazy place. I've entitled our sermon, It's Crazy Out There. You could say it's crazy in Crete. That's why I picked Titus chapter 2. Because I want you to see the kind of instruction that Paul gives a pastor who is living in a society that the wheels are coming off, much like our own. And I want you to catch the, the way that he talks to him. Before we get to our text, though, let's continue to just understand what kind of world Crete was. The Apostle Paul is a pretty sharp cookie. And when he's writing Titus about Crete, he wants to remind Titus that it's a really bad place and that the people are really bad. But he doesn't come out and say it because he doesn't want people thinking that he's being, you know, kind of nasty about it. So he quotes a Cretan philosopher or poet who is known in Crete. The writer, the, the people of Crete would have known this guy. And so the Apostle Paul quotes a well-known Cretan prophet talking about what Cretans are like in, first, in Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Look what he says. Paul says to Titus, here's where you're going to work. Here's the kind of people you're going to minister to. One of the Cretans living on the island of Crete, a prophet of their own said, quote, Cretans are always liars. They are evil beasts and they are lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Said, you want to know the kind of people you're working with? First of all, they're stinking liars. And I, I have noticed in our culture that lying has become so acceptable. It is difficult to watch even, even more normal, acceptable TV shows and, in relationships where people don't lie all the time on the show. You know, well, just tell them I'm not here. You know, just the, the function of lying. I walk into Walmart and I ask for something and I can tell the guy doesn't want to pay attention to me. And he just says, no, we don't have it. I'm sorry, we're out. I go look and I find it. He lied to me. He didn't want to take time to help me. I don't like that. He's just a liar. Cretans were liars. Evidently, they, they were skilled at just mistruth. They're liars. Evil beasts. He says they're evil beasts. In the Greek, the word there is untamed 
wild animals, untamed animals. What do untamed animals, how do they live? Untamed animals live with unrestrained behavior. And that's getting pretty descriptive of our own culture, isn't it? That's the way it was in Crete. The, the people, the young men, the old men, they were untrained animals. They lived with unrestrained behavior. Etiquette was out the window. Propriety was a thing of the past. They just did whatever felt good to them, driven like wild beasts. Does that make you think of a place and a time in which we're living? And they're lazy gluttons, man. Lazy gluttons. All they want to do is sit around, drink Mountain Dew, eat Doritos, and yell at their mom when they don't have any more Doritos. <laughs> Why don't you go get a job? Uh-huh. Just lazy. Lazy, and they like to eat a lot. That is gluttons. That is, they wanted to satisfy the appetites of the body in an unrestrained manner. Lazy and feeding the appetites of the body. So there we go. This is who the book is written to. And this is what chapter 2 is defining for us. Where the gospel is going to come in. And it's going to interrupt liars and wild beast like people and lazy gluttons. You see the gospel is a transformative power. And what I want you to see is that the key to success and thriving in our relationships and in our homes rests upon the power and authority of the gospel to transform our lives. So I am not a psychologist. I am a pastor. And I have many times sat at my desk and I have listened to people share their hearts with tears rolling down their cheeks and they need help and they want help. And I think to myself... There isn't a therapist with enough PhDs on the end of his name to untangle that mess. Sin destroys. And I think to myself, I can help these people. I know what they need. They need the cross. They need the blood of Christ to come and cleanse them. They need newness of life. They need a new start. They need the past put behind them. And they need to start over brand new. And the only way that happens is the gospel. That's it. It's the only way. I'm not saying there's not residuals of all that sinful behavior that you got to work out and untangle. But I'm telling you, there's no therapist that's worth his money because they can't fix your problems. Because sin destroys. And the only thing that fixes sin is the shed blood of Jesus Christ at the base of the cross. That's it. And so we're reminded that That the gospel has the power to change lives. It has the power to change our kids. The power to change our homes. The power to change our families. And we're reminded, number one, in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. This is Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The first thing I want you to see is what we need to fix our homes is a spiritual solution. First and foremost, it's a spiritual solution. The grace of God that brings salvation. What's going to save us is this free gift of God where he transforms our hearts and our minds and he brings newness of life. And therefore, if anybody be in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And it's the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And he substituted in, didn't he? And he paid the penalty for our sin. And so then we can be, begin to rebuild in Christ. 
adopted into the family of God, children of God, co-heirs with Christ, seated in the heavenlies, all of the authority and promises of the word of God now apply to my life and it can work. But it's spiritual to begin with. Let me tell you, I wanted to throw in uh, that it's global, this reality. It's global. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to what? To for all people. It's for all people. It doesn't say to, it says for all people. In other words, this spiritual solution is the same no matter where you go, wherever people are all the time. So in France and in South Africa and up on the Yukon and in Maine and in Texas and in Guatemala and in Honduras and in China and in Czechoslovakia or wherever, the Ukraine, all right? The grace of God that brings salvation is there for those people too. It is the answer and solution for all of humankind. Thirdly, I want you to see that it's behavioral in nature. It's behavioral. Look what it says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Look at verse 12. This grace brings a salvation which teaches us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Listen, the gospel brings about behavioral change. When Christ gets a hold of our hearts and our minds, transformation begins to take place. Value systems shift. Worldviews change. And we begin to change. In fact, this entire chapter 2, I wanted to break it down, but it's interesting. Number 4, it's a generational. It's generational and in its influence. The gospel is. Uh, let your eyes go up to verse 2. He addresses the older men. In verse 3, the older women, you can define who you are yourself. He doesn't. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. That's behavioral. The gospel is to impact older men in the church and in the home. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And they are so to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure and working at home, kind and submissive. Those are behavioral changes. And the older women are to teach the younger women. And the pastor is to teach the younger men. And the older men are to teach the younger men that the gospel transforms your life and these behaviors. Listen, you can figure out what the problems were among the Cretans by the answers that Paul is giving Titus here. So he, in other words, he says, teach the older men, teach the older men to be sober-minded, to be dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So evidently, the older men were becoming really careless, really undisciplined, and really unreliable. That Paul would tell Titus, teach them that the gospel transform you and you need to become reliable men. You are an example. You're the old man. The gospel will transform your life. Evidently, drunkenness among older women sitting around drinking wine all day among older women was a problem in Crete. Look what it says. Likewise, they are to be reverent in behavior. So evidently, they told crass jokes and were irreverent. They were slanderers with their speech and they were slaves to much wine. Because Paul says to Titus, you need to teach those old women to knock that stuff off. 
That's a precarious job for a pastor, by the way, to confront the old women of the church with their behavior. The one on the end is the worst one. And he goes on for the young men. Did you notice, do you know that four times in the passage under old men, he says, be self-controlled. Under old women, reverent, be reverent and change your attitude. Young women, to love their husbands, to be self-controlled and pure, working at home. Young men, in verse 6, be self-controlled. He even includes bond servants in verse 9, people who are stuck in undesirable kinds of relationship where they have authority ruling over them and they can do nothing about it, like slaves. And then he says in verse 12 again that the gospel is to make us self-controlled. Listen, it's, it's, it's behavioral and it's intergenerational, this gospel effect. And it's countercultural. Look at the end of verse 12. He says, and we'll wrap up shortly. Stay with me. Upright and godly lives in this present age. Right now, at this time, This is what you're supposed to be. Not waiting for heaven. He's not saying, this is the ideal, but you really can't live up to it. He's saying that the same grace of God that brings salvation is the same tutor that will come and teach you how to live out of salvation that is represented by self-control and godly behavior. And that's going to change your home. And you're to do this right now in this present age. And I'm warning you, that is counter-cultural. If you're going to live the Christian life in a biblical manner and, and have, a, have a Christian home, you are going to have a weird factor that your neighbors are going to notice. You're going to have that psychological disorder called ODD, odd. <laughs> because that's not how the culture is. Because you're going to do things differently and you're going to change patterns and you're going to change behaviors and you're going to change attitudes and worldview. And it's, you're just not going to fit in. And so my question is, how come I look so much like my pagan neighbors? If this transformative gospel has been at work in me all of these years, why is it that I am so similar to a man who doesn't know Christ? Ever, you ever ask yourself that question? It is eternal, verse 13, and it's practical, verse 14. We have an eternal hope of glory, verse 13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But he, give, he gave himself for us to redeem us. That's buy us out of the slave market of sin. It's transformative from all lawlessness. See, there's self-control again. We're going to put away lawlessness, screaming, kicking, slamming doors, throwing things, avoiding one another being cruel and mean to one another. That lawlessness is gone and we're going to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There's going to be a practical outworking of this gospel in our lives that the behavior in our home will be edifying and building up. So are you ready to change? It's easy to talk about and it's hard to do. You know that deeply embedded, negative, adult character traits are hard to retrain. She can do it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Are you ready for God to change your family, your marriage, your kids, you? I'm talking about really change. Sometimes when I have people across my desk from me, I use a word picture. I've probably shared it here before. It's that we're in a boat going down the river of life. And we got water in the bottom of our boat and we kind of splash our feet in it and it gets around our ankles, but we're really good at maneuvering our boat. We miss the rocks and we get to shore and we move and, and our boat is doing pretty well and we got water up to our ankles. And then one day I look down and I realize I got water halfway up my legs. And the boat is getting really, it's just a little harder boat to row. And, and then, the, then I wake up one morning and I realize the water is up to my knees and this boat is not going to make it. It's going to sink. And that's when I call my pastor. I understand that. I'm thankful that you call your pastor. Don't not call your pastor. I wish I could help better than I do. Most of us don't want to call somebody that we love and respect and that we care about what they think about us until our boat is about to sink. I understand that. I'm the same way. I don't want to tell you stupid stuff. You don't want to tell me your stupid stuff. But the boat won't go. And you're heave-hoeing on the oars and the boat is going to sink and you're beating on the rocks and the thing is going to sink and you're going to lose it all. You're going to go zipping off the edge of the cliff in the SUV at 90 miles an hour. And there is no stopping it. And so you come and you sit down and and we begin to repiece things. And we begin to identify what is reality here and what are we really dealing with. And and we get a five-gallon pail and we start to bail together. and, And somebody gets in the boat with you and they start bailing and the water starts to go down. And it's feeling a little better. And and we find some chinks and we get some caulk out. We take the old rags that you had stuffed in there for temporary fixes. And and we're starting to caulk it and we're starting to finish it and repair it. And we get the water down and we get the water down to our legs. We get the water back down to our ankles and they don't show up anymore. So, hey, what's going on? Hey, man, everything's good. I said, no, no, you got water up to your ankles in your boat. Oh, it's okay. I can handle that. You see, most people live with a level of dysfunction that is normal. It's normal. I'm telling you, it's not normal to have water up to your ankles in your boat, even if you can maneuver your boat. And so when I say, are you ready to change? I mean, are you ready to dry up the boat? Are you ready to fix it? You ready to fix it? It's not easy. It begins and it, and, it, and, it, and it processes and it ends with the gospel, I'm telling you, and the power of Christ to transform us. And it might take a while, but we've got to get rid of the water. Just because you can row your boat pretty effectively, wouldn't it be nice to just have dry feet in your boat? To think, wow, this boat really, really takes the rapids nicely. Secondly, are you ready to identify the junk? Are you ready to identify the junk? I listen to conservative talk radio uh, throughout the day when I'm in my car and back and forth, WMAL, and on there I notice there's a repeated ad for these junk collectors and they say, just point, just point. I'm afraid that one day I'm going to come out at like 11. They're open till midnight. They say, we're available till midnight. I'm going to come out to my garage at like 11 o'clock at night and Janny Baby's going to be out there pointing. (laughs) And she'll be pointing across the backyard and... That's my stuff, man. Just point and they'll get rid of the junk. That would probably be a very good thing for my marriage if that happened. Do you wish you had somebody who could just point, start pointing at the junk and the junk would go. 
Start pointing, they'll just get rid of the junk. You're going to have to identify what the junk is and you're going to have to figure out how we're going to get rid of it. Are you ready for that? Remember I was talking about our enemy, the flesh? It is remarkable how committed our flesh is to some of the junk. Thirdly, do you really believe that the gospel changes everything? Do you really believe that the gospel changes everything? It can change your attitude, it can change your heart, can allow you to forgive at a deep level, can allow you to have a grace that you're going to need. I don't know what God wants to do. Uh, I suspect that he wants to do things in my own heart and life and home and marriage through this series. I suspect that some of us really, really need this series. We ask God to begin to just work a transformational change through the truth of the gospel in our lives. Will you stand with me, please? With our heads bowed, I wonder if you've made that spiritual decision to run to the cross, to lay down the burden of your sin and let the blood of Christ cleanse you to transform you, to put all of your sin burden on Christ. And then the gift of salvation is when he gives you his righteousness for free by grace through faith alone. And you can stand before God, clean and just. You might be beat up and scarred up from sin, but the record of that sin is gone. That's the starting point. You're willing to tell God you're ready to change this morning and start pointing out the junk. And so, Father, we need your help. We are weak at best. We are vulnerable. We are um, naive to the power of Satan. We are the frog in the kettle in this world, and it has saturated us and come around us in a way that we don't even recognize anymore. So would you awaken us with the reality of the gospel and the transformative power of Christ in our lives, I pray. That through changing hearts and lives and marriages and families, you would change our church. That you would begin to do a new work here, Lord, a needed work. And we commit ourselves to you, our loving Heavenly Father. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Amen.